Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I am Ethan, very glad that you have joined us, and so thank you uh, for the gift that you've given us to spend time together as we explore what God has made known through the Hebrews author. We pick up in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We have reached this point in the letter where the Hebrews author has begun this great description of faith and the hall of faith, so to speak. Uh, this is a passage that is very familiar to a lot of Christians, but a lot of times the way this passage has been explored has been somewhat dis- decontextualized and disembodied as here, here's a great uh, exploration of all of these heroes of faith. But it comes at a very pivotal part of this letter. In some ways, you might have expected the letter to be wrapping up because the Hebrews author has kind of brought his exhortation and sustained argument to this grand climax in chapter 10 where he has established that Christians have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that new and living way that he opened up uh, through his life and his death and his resurrection, of course, and that we have a great high priest over the house of God, that he is the the effective high priest, fully God, fully man, uh, having totally fulfilled the law, able to intercede continually for us, that Christians are to draw near with a true heart, to um, hold fast a confession of the hope without wavering, and to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, And then there's the warning and then the assurance, the warning that if you keep sinning after coming to knowledge of the truth, you turn away and you abandon the faith, that um, you are crucifying the Son of God again, that the law of Moses, those who uh, flagrantly violated it, were condemned on the basis of two or three witnesses. How much worse is it going to be if you are profaning the blood of the covenant uh, of, of Jesus? and that the Lord will judge his people, that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But the Christians to whom he is writing, uh, he's convinced of better things, that they need to remember the days before when they had just become Christians, and they had suffered greatly and publicly, and they were even deprived of property, and yet they took that with joy because they had a better possession and an abiding one, that they aren't to throw this confidence that they have away because that confidence has a great reward. He wants them to show endurance. And it's very important for us to understand that this is very this is inco- going to help us understand what he's going to say in chapter 11, because his audience are Christians to whom he would not have needed to write this letter when they had become Christians. Now, there's a lot of stuff in here that uh, younger Christians can, can certainly benefit from. And this is not suggesting that this letter is only for older, more mature Christians, But the full force of the letter is for older, more mature Christians because they had gone on so long. And that's the thing about patience and endurance. The challenge of patience and endurance is not just in beginning to display patience. It's holding out. It's extending out. It's the long part of that long suffering. When we know that we're going to have to suffer for a time, we might be able to endure it for a certain specific amount of time. But when it gets drawn out and it's even longer, 
that sometimes that's when we despair and uh, we lose our patience because it's it's taking longer than we were ready and prepared to manage it and we just let go. We give up. We release. And that's what the Hebrews author is worried about. He's worried about the Christians to whom he's writing just releasing. And that is why he says they need to endure that when they have done the will of God, they would receive what is promised. They haven't received what is promised yet fully. And that, again, there's a tension throughout the Christian faith that on the one hand, we do have relationally with God in Christ, thanks to what he's done on the cross when we become Christians, that we participate in the life of God in Christ among his people. Uh, but yet we do not have the fullness because we still need to persevere. We need to resist sin. We, we need to uh, be, remain faithful to death if we're going to receive the fullness of what is promised. And that's when he quotes from Habakkuk. Very important from Habakkuk chapter 2 about the righteous one lives by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him that we are not those shrinking back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And that's why he begins with faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, this is where we have to do some Greek taught talk because of the language being used. Uh, assurance here in the English Standard is the Greek hypostasis. Hypostasis will become a very important word in later Christian history in terms of understanding the nature of the Godhead, uh, where it will become a very technical term talking about the, uh, the quote-unquote kind of uh, a substance uh, person of, uh, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit um, as one, and yet also somewhat distinct. Um, but that is not the sense in which the term is being used here. There's many different kind of ways hypostasis is used in the ancient world. Uh, it's a setting under a support, so it can be assurance or an essence, you know, confidence, a confident a person or substance, a lot of range of where this word can go. Uh, but when we are seeing it here in this passage, um, the idea of that, the substance of what we hope for, i.e. the confidence, the, the assurance of it, is, is definitely the better way of looking at that term. And then we have, um, in the English Standard, the conviction, uh, which is alechos, which is kind of evidence or proof, conviction here. Very important to go here with the idea of conviction or convince uh, more than proof, because proof you get into, it's not that proof is a bad word, or that it would necessarily be a bad translation, it's just that that, that word kind of is taken on the scientific domain and, and can be abused in the apologetics to act like you can make uh, a kind of airtight case for faith in a way that the Hebrews author is not really getting at here. Because he's tied into the whole tradition of scripture, tradition of Paul and, and everybody else here, looking at the fact that you know, you don't hope for what you see. If you can see it, it's not hope in Romans 8. And so the very nature of the fact that there's hope means that it goes beyond what you can perceive. And if you can't perceive it, there is the ability to doubt. There is, there's, there's, there's apprehensions. There's this space in which the Hebrews audience finds itself, or the Hebrews author is concerned that his audience has found itself where they're starting to grow weary and they're getting distressed because they can't see realized what they've been hoping for. One of the important things that we're going to do throughout chapter 11, especially where the Hebrews author will bring it up, is to see not just the positive examples, but the negative foil. 
And so, again, what would be the negative foil of this? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what's opposite is that when you try to live by sight, uh, you it's, it's based on what you can perceive and what you can control and manipulate, but that only takes you so far. Uh, the conviction or the, the realization that, okay, only thing I can see is what I believe in, that you can create that kind of construct. And that's, of course, where we're at with our physical materialist world that we live in in modern secularism. But when you kind of try to fence it off that way, there's a lot of things you can't explain. But beyond, but beyond that, uh, when you try to control it, it, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't reach its point or potential, and uh, it, you're blinded to what is outside of that, which may be influencing it very significantly. And that's what's going on here. So uh, what is faith? This is not designed to be a comprehensive definition. You don't just say, all right, what is faith? Well, let's look at Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Because it's not suggesting that what faith here is, is that it's a bad definition or that it's wrong. It's just one part of a greater whole. Uh, we don't talk about trust here. We don't talk about how faith is confidence here uh, in terms of the person. Uh, it, it This is about the faith, uh, and it's setting up something. He's using it contextually to kind of frame the mind based upon, okay, you need to live by faith. Well, what does faith look like? Faith looks like this confidence in hope, conviction of what cannot be seen, because it's certainly out there. It's certainly very real. And that's why uh, he's going to go in verse 3, as we're going to see in a moment, to talk about the creation, because it's a very important aspect to that. Before that, we have verse 2. That by it, the people of old received their commendation. Uh, that they uh, had witness born to them, uh, literally. A very important idea there, that witness. Uh, the witness of God, that they were his people, and that they uh, would receive what uh, they had uh, believed in what they had had great confidence in that God was going to do. And this is going to be the reason why we have this kind of rehearsal here of, of sacred history. Um, one of those important things to keep in mind is history is not just this wide panoply of facts about the past. Uh, history in its telling is always designed to tell something to a, a quote-unquote modern audience. Because you can never just tell everybody or anybody the whole series of facts about a given event. The very act of selecting certain things to talk about, to focus on, and therefore, on the other hand, to neglect, is to use history for a purpose. And this is important because this is what happens throughout Scripture. It happens all the time. It's, it happens in the Old Testament, where in the Psalms, the psalmist will go back and rehearse salvation history, either to praise God for the salvation, the, all the great deeds he has done to save his people, or to lament the sins of the people, occasionally to exalt the ancestors who have done well, but most often to lament the, the history of what has gone wrong. The way that the history of the people of God has come down to us uh, in the chronic, in uh, all of the chronicles, the chronicles themselves, King Samuel, uh, Joshua, Judges, and all of that, has been written and designed not just to tell us facts about what happened in Israel's history, but to demonstrate 
on the one hand, Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, and on the other hand, the people's idolatry, and why it all went wrong and led to the exile. Uh, that is absolutely how the story is being framed. Uh, yes, you have certain narratives where you can start, look, David's exaltation is, is, is telling you something else, uh, but the grand tenor of it all is to point out what happened and why it happened so that later Israel would not fall into the same pattern of disobedience. It's absolutely motivated. And even the New Testament, Stephen stands up for the Sanhedrin. He starts rehearsing history. He picks out certain themes and events, looking at how uh, the p people of God have tended to reject the leaders God has sent them, and that God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. Uh, Paul, in Acts 13, and I think Luke tells us in Acts 13 what he says in Antioch Pisidia as kind of a paradigm of what he would say in most synagogues, stands up, starts rehearsing salvation history, how God had uh, done these acts of deliverance and lifted up leaders to David and to John the Baptist to get to Jesus. So what the Hebrews author is doing here is, is in this tradition. also see it in the book of Sirach in the apocryphal literature as well. Uh, and, and so when he's talking about all of these heroes of faith, the, the way that the people of old received their commendation, it's going to be very important for us to notice who he's talking about, which stories of that person he's focusing on, consider why he's not speaking about people he could have mentioned, and to see how, in fact, the examples he gives, he gives for reasons. And they all are tying into his main exhortative point of trying to get these Christians whom he's writing to continue to serve God and to put their trust in what they cannot see and to continue to live as exiles and sojourners, uh, even though they may be living in their native land. And so that's why we're going to have this rehearsal of what happened to the people of old. But before he does that, he, he, he starts with the fact that we understand the universe was created by the word of God, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We could really focus on that last part. How is it, what is it about that what is seen was not made out of what is visible? And to talk about, well, is he trying to deny the idea that creation came out of nothing or how that all works? We... I don't think the Hebrews author is trying to set up for us an ontology of the creation in that sense. That's a question that we might have for him, but that he's not interested in. The, the author here is not trying to add to the Genesis account. He's not trying to add to the general theme of what the creation means, uh, and the fact that it is created. But I think he is definitely persisting in this theme. One of the things we've seen throughout the letter is his love for the Psalms. Uh, we see that above all things. I mean, so much of the letter is built around his expositions of, you know, Psalm 8, Psalm 95, Psalm 110. And if you read the Psalms, there's two things that you get drilled home into you from the Psalms. Uh, that Yahweh is our creator. Yahweh has shown us covenant loyalty, his chesed, his loving kindness. So uh, the fact that he starts with the creation, Yahweh is our creator. And there's a really important aspect of that we understand by faith that this was created, and not just created, but by the word of God. This is in Psalm 33, many other passages. It is seen in Genesis 1. And I think he's focusing on that because of the fact that the word of God is what is we, we survive by, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And therefore, the word of God provides the infrastructure for all that we see. The word of God is a means by which we have been given life, and everything around us has been given life and has been created. And therefore, the words that come out of God's mouth are what sustain us. And that's why that all flows. That what is 
seen was made by what is unseen. I think he's focusing on that because of what he said in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If, indeed, the God has made the creation from that which is invisible, in, and now it has been manifest in what is visible, then we have to understand that what is visible is limited and is not the full picture. I think this is kind of a, another way of kind of pointing out what what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. Again, what's the danger? What's the concern here? If you deny that God is the creator, then you get your mind darkened, and now you put all your trust in what you can see. When you put your trust in what you can see, you invest it with absoluteness and divinity. You have made a God out of the creation, and you give the honor due to the creator to the creation, which is the way of idolatry that, that Paul condemns there in... Um, Romans chapter 8. Sorry, Romans chapter 1. Um, and that the Hebrews author is now pursuing in this way of, of kind of that, that foil again. That, well, if all you're going to do is trust in what you see, if we think the creation was made out of what was invisible, then you're missing out on all that what's invisible. That there's this whole realm beyond your understanding, beyond what you can see. And just because you can't see doesn't mean it's not real, it just means you can't see it. And that's a really powerful, potent thing to start with. And that, again, it's by faith. We have to trust in that because we cannot see it. Uh, it's not a blind faith in that just, well, we're just going to make this up. It's, it's rooted and grounded in the idea that God has communicated to us by the same means by which he created all things and gives it life. And we have life in it. And therefore we can have confidence in it. But we're not going to be able to, quote-unquote, prove it through some kind of empirical, rational construct because it goes beyond what is rational and beyond what can be proven because it is invisible. It is beyond our perception. Now we then get into the probably the most puzzling of all the characters, which is Abel. And the reason why Abel is the most puzzling of the characters is because we're going to be able to really make good sense of all the rest of the characters. Why does he mention Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and, and so on and so forth? But why Abel? What do we know about Abel? Well, he's the son of Adam and Eve, second son. Uh, he is a shepherd when Cain is a, is a farmer. They both bring offerings to God of their respective uh, fruits. And God accepts Abel's, does not accept Cain's. And, of course, this leads to the great storm. Why did he not accept Cain's sacrifice? And, of course, when, when uh, the Hebrews are says that Abel offered a greater sacrifice than Cain, or a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, with, it, it just kind of adds fuel to the fires. The Hebrews author is saying it's because it was an animal, because it was the lamb, because it was like a you know, type of Christ. Uh, and, and so we get all up into what the nature of the sacrifice is. And again, I don't know that um, the Hebrews author is really trying to uh, tell us more about the Genesis account than what's already in the Genesis account. We are to just accept what is in the Genesis account. He's talking about what's in the Genesis account. And so it could... It could be. We don't know. But it very much also could be the quality of the sacrifice, i.e., uh, it could be the attitude with which it was offered. It could be uh, the mechanism, the way that it was prepared. Uh, it could be a number of things. We're not told explicitly, and to rush into that is just going to get us into trouble. It's good for us to consider all the range of possibilities. But here's the thing that really is important about this story. And it goes. It, it's really less about Abel here and more about Cain. 
Uh, in fact, that Cain was even mentioned here, again, is that foil. What's the difference between Abel and Cain? Abel trusted in God, offered what ends up being an acceptable sacrifice, and honored God. What happened to Cain? Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Cain got angry. Cain took it out on his brother. Cain's problem is his heart. We can see that he did not trust in God, because we can do a counterfactual. Let's let's say, for instance, that it was the fact that it was um, grains that he offered, and he should have just offered one of the animals. He should have given some grain to Abel and gotten an animal from Abel to sacrifice. Not saying that's what it was. We're just using that as a possible example. Um, in that situation, if Cain really was interested in glorifying God and serving God, he would have heard his sacrifice was rejected. He might have been disappointed, but he would have done what was necessary to please God. He would have demonstrated that faith in God. Instead, he got angry, and God warns him in the passage that sin is at the door crouching to take you. And, of course, sin takes over, and he kills his brother, which is the, the way of... And so, really, the Hebrews author is giving you a choice. Are you going to take the way of Abel or the way of Cain? Uh, if you turn away from God, you're taking the way of Cain. Sin is crouching at the door and will, will become your master if you're not careful. And I think the focus here on Abel uh, he is, is the fact that you know he offered this righteous sacrifice he, he, and he was killed. He was killed unjustly. And he, that, that he, through his faith, he still speaks though he is dead. That though he died, he still speaks. Well, how is he speaking if he's dead? Well, his blood is crying out from the ground because of the injustice he suffered. That's what is uh, what's speaking. And we can get that idea because in chapter 12, he's going to talk about the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel in verse 24. Because Abel's blood was shed, and the ground received it, uh, and, and cries out to be satisfied in justice, but it was just a, a horrible thing that happened. It's a terrible tragedy. Jesus' blood speaks better because it was offered as a sacrifice itself and uh, through the resurrection, and it becomes this kind of service to God, which why the, the very different nature of that. But he's really focused there on Abel's sacrifice, because, look, you will sometimes do what's right and die for it. You will do what's right and good, and somebody's going to be jealous to kill you or deprive you of goods. And how are you going to accept that? So that is why Abel becomes the first witness. He becomes the first martyr. Very much a witness to uh, the way of righteousness and the fact that you can suffer unjustly because you have done what is right. And that's what's going on more with Abel. We, we should look at it. Yes, his sacrifice is why he has this commendation before God, but it's the faith that motivated that sacrifice, the faith that sustained him in making that sacrifice, and the fact that he was killed for it, he is now this witness before God. And finally, maybe the point here is from the beginning that the whole thing about sacrifice was that you can offer all the sacrifices you want. You can put the grain, you can put the animal, you can put all the things God has asked for on the table, but if you're not doing it in faith, if you don't do it in trust and with the heart and to glorify God, it's not going to matter. We're going to look forward as we continue on here to consider uh, more examples of faith in the same way. Not just what does the story say, but what is the Hebrews author doing with it? Why is he pointing out this detail and that detail and of neglecting perhaps other parts of the story? What's he trying to prove? And we look forward to continuing that conversation soon. And may the Lord bless and keep you until then.